Hi, and welcome to another episode of Veterinary Journal Club. I'm super excited to welcome to the show Dr. Chris Dominic, who is a third-year surgery resident at uh, the Virginia Maryland College of Veterinary Medicine. Um, and so, Chris, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, this is this, this is really exciting for me because this is the first time we've had um, an in-person, socially distanced. Um, program in like months. It's not just me and Topher at home talking or talking to someone over the phone or via Zoom. So I'm um, like, I'm actually like really excited. I feel like we're getting the podcast like back to where we wanted it. So thank you for being here. Um, yeah, yeah this will be really fun. So we today are going to talk, um, because Chris is a surgeon, um, we're going to talk about something um, surgery-like. Um, we're going to talk about liver shunts. Specifically, I guess, liver shunts and dogs. That's going to be the main focus. Um, And because we were chatting on clinics not that long ago about like, you know, when do you do surgery? When do you medically manage? And I was like, oh, that seems like a great topic um, to go through. So um, we'll try to bring in the relevant literature when it exists and when we're aware of it. Um, But mostly we're just going to kind of review the topic. So it's probably a good idea to start with just a general review reminder for listeners. Like when we say liver shunt, what, what is going on? Yeah, so for um, most cases, you're probably going to be talking about small breed dogs that come in. Um, they may have uh, GI signs or even lower urinary tract signs. They may seem a little off after a meal to an owner um, or just acting abnormally. So the in the small breed dogs, we're thinking more of congenital extrahepatic portosystemic shunts. Um, and so really what the the pathophysiology is, or maybe I should start by talking about what would normally happen. Sure. Is, so after you eat a meal or uh, and, and your body is digesting, your intestines are digesting and absorbing nutrients, all of the um, intestines, except the, you know, the most distal aspect or abhorrent aspect of the colon is going to flow into or be absorbed into the portal system. Um, and so those nutrients and the portal system shunt or Carry blood. Yeah. <laughs> didn't mean to say shunt there, but we'll pull uh, and bring blood to the liver. And then it's in the liver that all of these nutrients are metabolized and detoxified, and then they go out into systemic circulation. Yeah. Um, and so in a portosystemic shunt, the blood is being shunted away from the liver. Yeah. So all of those nutrients don't have a chance to be digested. And even though it's, you know, something that we might normally eat, it's not necessarily a toxin. Um, It might seem toxic to the body because it's not metabolized into the form that we need it. And so where we tend to see that is, you know, commonly the central nervous system. Mm -hmm. Um, And so the one that toxin that people talk about and sort of test for most often is, is probably um, ammonia. And Mm -hmm. so we, we, you know, are routinely testing uh, ammonia uh, in these patients. And so the, um, the body is sort of not used to seeing this much ammonia um, because the, the liver will metabolize it to something more benign. Um, and so these dogs come in with uh, neurologic signs or the owners are complaining yeah. about, uh, you know, maybe a mentation change or something. And a lot of times you can ask them if it's surrounding a meal time or something mm-hmm. like that or after they get treats or something um and and that's sort of maybe a first clue in yeah and so we call that hepatic encephalopathy mm-hmm. so hepatic encephalopathy can be caused by any time the liver isn't processing things and we get a buildup of toxins specifically ammonia is one of the main ones um and probably the most important and most 
you know, frequent cause for hepatic encephalopathy in, in dogs specifically, like you said, young and, and small breed dogs is going to be a shunt, a, a portosystemic shunt. So, okay. So basically what happened is at birth, you're supposed to have a closing of that shunt, right? The, um, you know, when you're in the womb, mom's liver does all of this for you, which is really nice of her. But then when you leave the womb, you got to do it yourself. And so those, um, those little passageways between the vessels are supposed to close down. And in some animals that doesn't happen. Um, and so the, the, the blood is basically skipping over the liver. Um, and so you just need to close that shunt, right? Easy peasy. Yeah, super easy. Just send the surgeon in there to find it and do it. Yeah. Okay. So, okay. You're suspecting a shunt. Mm -hmm. Um, You're saying, okay, the signs fit, the breed fit, so on and so forth. How how are you going to diagnose it? Yeah. So um, looking at your blood work starting out, so just your routine blood work that you're looking for, you may find um, evidence on your CBC. You might find evidence of something like a microcytic or not necessarily an anemia, but a microcytosis uh, because remember that red blood cells need iron and that iron is getting uh, sequestered. And so you might see some changes in your RBCs um, or you might see an elevation in your white blood cell count because the liver is also responsible for um, any bacteria that sort of make it into the portal systemic uh, or into the portal circulation will sort of be caught by the liver. Mm -hmm. Um, and so you might see elevations in white blood cells for, for those reasons because those bacteria are not getting caught by the liver. Um, on your chemistries, you may notice that there's elevations in some of your liver enzymes, and they're usually mild to verging on maybe moderate elevations. It's not usually, you know, we're not talking a marked elevation mm-hmm. in, your, in your routine ALT, ALP uh, enzymes. Um, but you also may see decreased markers of uh, hepatic function. So your glucose, your urea, albumin, cholesterol, they may be mm-hmm. low in these patients as mm-hmm. well. Um, could, could the blood work all just be normal? Yeah, the, the blood work can be normal in some of these patients. Um, and so you may want to, your routine blood work may be normal. So there's other blood work that you can do that will help you to assess hepatic function more. Um, And so something like that would be your bile acids test. Yeah. Um, So you could do a preprandial or like a fasted bile acid and then do postprandial or after you've fed them. And you're looking for basically the liver's ability to clear those bile acids um, and if you're not seeing that, then, you know, you can be more strongly suspicious that this patient has a portosystemic shunt. Yeah. Um, or at so those would be like the liver function tests, yeah, right? Exactly. Like, so the bile acids, um, which is not on your routine chemistry or the ammonia that you already mentioned. Right. So those are two indicators of that are specific to the liver mm-hmm. and the function of the liver, where like the albumin, the BUN, um, those things are, you know, we call those sometimes pseudo function tests, where yeah. if the liver isn't working, either because it's broken or because it's just not getting blood flow, um, then those might be low. But um, other things can affect those, whereas the bile acids and the ammonia are fairly specific to the liver. So, um, so yeah, I've definitely seen cases over the years where like the routine CBC chemistry is all pretty darn normal, but you're still suspicious of the shunt for whatever reason. So, yeah, you just need to do those additional tests. So if I do my bile acids and my ammonia and they're high, does that mean I have a shunt? Not necessarily. Oh, no. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. 
All right. So now what do I have to do? Yeah. Well, one thing that I also want to mention, because it's probably not in everyone, I guess it depends on where you're trained because I've been to hospitals where it's part of their minimum database and I've been other places where it's not, but something that you should consider in these patients as well is doing a urinalysis. Um, And the reason being, we we talked about the ammonia and how um, it can be higher in systemic circulation. It gets filtered out into the in the urine and so these patients can present with ammonium biurate stones and so uh, I'd encourage you to question your owners if they've noticed any urinary tract signs lower urinary tract signs as well and so doing a um, doing a urinalysis to look for crystals in the in the urine is important as well um, but you should also do some other diagnostic tests that will uh, yeah. some imaging and just because you don't see crystals on yeah, your uh, on your urinalysis doesn't mean there's not stones in the bladder. But that's a really good point because like lots of types of crystals you can find in the urine and mm-hmm. you're like, meh, whatever. But it's specifically the ammonium right. biurate crystals yes. are like, mm, no, we don't mm-hmm. see those in other patients. So that yep. is actually a really good point because um, that that's obviously going to narrow your focus quite a bit on, on what the problem is. So, all right, I'm strongly suspicious of a shunt, um, but I come to the surgeon and they're like, well, you haven't diagnosed it yet. So what do you, what do you need to be convinced that this is a shunt? Yeah. So the blood work and everything is a great start, but you want to know it's, this isn't the kind of thing that you want to go in and explore and look for. (laughs) No, that doesn't You're going to want, especially because these are tiny little breeds, right? Mm -hmm. Like, yeah. So you're going to, uh, you're going to want, uh, some form of imaging preoperatively. Um, and, and that may vary depending on, um, you know, the, the surgeon that you're talking to. Mm-hmm. Um, here at Virginia Tech, a lot of times we will, if depending on our de- degree of suspicion, we may start with an abdominal ultrasound mm-hmm. uh, and we'll do an abdominal ultrasound. And our radiologists here are very good at finding shunts for us on ultrasound. Um, that being said, if we identify a shunt on ultrasound or we don't see a shunt on ultrasound, a lot of times we will still recommend doing a CT, um, especially if the ultrasonographer is having trouble following the vessel and sort of giving us the, the origin insertion. Um, and so doing a CT preoperatively, you know, we can be, we, we know normal anatomy, so we can identify most of the not well all of the major vessels right? <laughs> hopefully yeah but um the so then we're looking for abnormal or aberrant vessels that um, shouldn't be there and so that can help us uh, or the surgery team when they're going in intraoperatively gives us an idea of more so where we want to be looking although we still would always do sure. a very thorough explore yeah now usually uh, at least i'm used to that being referred to as a ct angiogram because you're also yes. going to give contrast yeah, which highlights exactly. the vessels and be like mm-hmm. aha that that's because otherwise all that tissues can you yeah. just can't you just do like radiographs with contrast couldn't couldn't that work no, how are you? No, do I don't that? know. <laughs> I don't know. I, that's. I feel like that's a question I've never really asked. But I'm, I'm guessing because it's not 3D, it would still be hard to figure mm-hmm. out. Like, right? Because you you can imagine if you're if you're thinking about this, the listeners are thinking about this. Like, um, you yeah, know, two dimensional pictures of a mm-hmm. three dimensional dog, and because contrast mm-hmm. goes through the bloodstream pretty quickly, you, I guess you'd have to get like really quick um, uh, uh, orthogonal views to be able to piece that together, and it's probably not going to work. So, yeah, no, yeah you need a, think, you need a three dimensional. I mean, image. there are things that you could do on uh, like there might be things that you would see on yeah. radiographs, like a, maybe a small liver. Yeah, um, maybe um, you know the urate crystals are not generally radio opaque. Yeah. So, but stones um, would be. Uh, oh, sorry, the urate stones. Yeah, the right. bite. It could be if they're if they're. Uh, you're right. No, those are radiolucent ones. That's yeah, right. So that's remember the what ICU. is that? What is the acronym? ICU. Uh, yeah, I was. I, say I think ICU. that's right. It's been a while. Like, ICU. So cysteine and urate. I see cysteine and wait. 
Okay. Wait, I see those? But those would be the ones you don't see, right? You see struvites and you see calcium, calcium oxalates. Yeah. I, I don't guess, remember. I guess the acronym so doesn't make sense, acronyms. but I see you. Is, Are the ones I guess you maybe don't it's see? I don't see you. Maybe that's There's what it is. There's a little oh, in those there. acronyms. Okay. Yeah. But you're right. The ammonium biuric acid stones. from the acronym, I guess. Yeah. So I don't um, really remember. If you know a better it. acronym, send it to us and we'll... Yeah. And we'll, we'll post it later or I'll mention it in a future show. I don't remember this acronym. But yes, the ammonium biurate um, stones Mm -hmm. are going to be radiolucent. So you wouldn't necessarily, you might see them on an ultrasound. I guess what I'm thinking though, like if the, you know, if you're out in practice Mm -hmm. and is, is there really much benefit to spending the money to do abdominal radiographs? Yeah, no, I don't, I I don't, I don't think so. I mean, a small liver is, is probably going to be difficult for a lot of people to call on radiographs. Like maybe a radiologist would do it or someone who's got very good experience. But I feel like this isn't a case where unless you're looking for other causes of the pet mm -hmm. signs. And and that's a non-specific finding too, I would say. So I would say it's probably best not to spend the money on radiographs and find um, someone for an ultrasound. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense to me. So ultrasound, pretty good. You're, you're probably still going to want the CT angiogram, but you might live without it depending on the circumstances. Yeah. I've been in on cases where we haven't necessarily, um, you know, where the ultrasonographer has been very uh, confident yeah, in about their where everything findings is coming and, and going. the surgeons felt very comfortable. So we hope yeah. haven't always reached for a CT, but yeah. um, a CT angiogram or CTA is the gold be, standard. Yeah. 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 Okay. So you have your CT angiogram and you say, all right, the vessels are going from here to here. We know what we're looking for. We know right where to go. Mm-hmm. You get into surgery, you explore around and you go, yeah, that, that's what we're finding. Yeah. Now you just tie it off, right? <laughs> yeah. come on i just want you to fix it for me chris oh yeah i know um it's so easy <laughs> um so yeah i mean you go in and you're going to do a thorough explore and you know there are uh certain places that we would look like you want to make sure you really look up by the diaphragm you mm-hmm. want to look back by the kidneys you want to um look at like the actual portal vein and in, in around the epipillow mm-hmm. frame and um and so um, it, it's very nice to have the imaging and then, yeah, go in and, and just tie yes, it off. Yes, fix it. So um, there are multiple ways to address a shunt intra-op. So um, used to be, and you know, I'm probably making myself sound very young because I, I haven't met anyone that still does this, but you could do direct ligation where yeah. they would just uh, use some form of suture. Usually, I think historically it would be silk. Mm-hmm. Um and you would just perform a, a direct ligation mm-hmm. and just completely attenuate the shunt at that mm-hmm. point once you've mm-hmm. um, ID'd it. And obviously there's going to be a lot, there's fine dissection to sort of, mm-hmm. you want to get all the the adventitia and the, um, the separate the vessel really from, like skeletonize it from the surrounding tissues or yeah. any fat that might be around it. Um, and, you know, direct ligation with suture where you completely attenuate. Um, and... It, that's not very commonly done uh, anymore. I don't know why not. Well, um, so <laughs> this you sounds have like to I think, mean, doesn't that seem simple enough? Mm-hmm, yeah, um, but you we have don't to think about yeah. the the consequences, I guess, yeah. of of doing that. So uh, the liver has been having a decreased blood flow. So normally, the the portal vein supplies eighty percent of the blood flow to the liver, which is yeah. a, a substantial amount, um, and the other twenty percent comes from the hepatic artery. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, but the portal blood hasn't been routinely going to the liver at this point. And so it's not used to accommodating that volume of blood flow. Uh, so if you were to go in and just completely ligate the shunt um, and 
then all of a sudden now the the liver is receiving a, a surge of blood flow that it's not used to normally seeing. Oh. Um, you could end up overwhelming the liver uh, in in the sense that the it's got more blood to to process and that has to move through the liver, and you can end up with portal hypertension. Um, because the the blood is sort of getting backed up within the vessels as it's passing through the liver. So if you think Um, about it, like, you know, all this time since, you know, birth, essentially, in mm -hmm. in these cases, we're talking about congenital um, abnormalities, like all those other vessels are just not getting any blood flow. And so they've kind of atrophied, they've gotten kind of bored, they're not really doing much. And then all of a sudden, like get this tidal wave of blood coming through, and they're just not equipped to handle that. Um, But we think over time, they could. And so, Okay, well, so what do you just like tie it off a little bit and then come back in a few weeks and tie it a little more and tie it a little more? That seems very labor intensive. Yeah. So um, <laughs> there's there's a couple of different ways that you can sort of have gradual attenuation yeah. over time. Um, the one that we most commonly use at our hospital is an amyloid constrictor. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what that is, is it's uh, a ring that basically, um, if you imagine, it's almost like a, it's almost like a complete circle. Um, with just a little piece missing out of the circle that you can kind of loop around the vessel. Once you've skeletonized it out, you pass it around the vessel. Um, and then it's got a, a metal key that you uh, place in it to sort of close off the circle so that it's it's basically encompassing the entire shunt. Mm-hmm. Um, and on the outside of it is usually a metal or maybe a harder plastic ring. Um, on the inside of it, really up against the vessel, is a hydroscopic substance that's going to absorb fluid over time mm-hmm. um, and so you get a uh, in the in the immediate post-op period or even when you directly put it ar- uh, around the the shunt and then you know usually up to maybe two weeks afterwards um, that's when you're going to get the most attenuation of that shunt so it's going to narrow in diameter um, the most during those first two weeks um, what happens is that substance is absorbing fluid mm-hmm. from the body cavity from the peritoneal cavity over time and so you're going to get a gradual attenuation as, of the shunt as opposed to just completely tying it off all at once. Um, and so that's helpful because you're sort of progressively increasing the amount of blood that the liver is seeing. And so it can better, the liver is a great organ. It, it, it you know, it regenerates. It yeah, the body in general is pretty mm-hmm. adaptive, right, if you give it some time. Yeah, so it, it can accommodate that increase in blood flow over time. And so you're less likely to see... Um, evidence of portal hypertension which you'd be looking there you know there are things that we're looking for intra-op um when we're doing it but you know post-op we're monitoring things for like vomiting diarrhea uh, hemorrhagic diarrhea abdominal discomfort and cramping um or signs of of abdominal discomfort and cramping and so um you know the so the amyloid is one way that we prefer at this hospital to Mm -hmm. to go in and attenuate a shunt um, there are other ways to do it as well, thin film banding or cellophane banding. That's my so. favorite. That is, I'll be honest. That, and it's my, I'm not a surgeon, as listeners uh, know by now. Uh, not a surgeon, but I do remember the first time I was in on uh, cellophane. I think this must have been, it was probably during my residency. Um, it might have, I don't, it had to have been during my residency. But I remember this procedure being called cellophane band. It's the cellophane band technique. And I was thinking that's why is it called that? That doesn't Mm -hmm. really make sense. That's super weird. And then I got in there and then they cut a strip of cellophane and it looked exactly like the stuff that you wrap a gift gift basket with, that clear cellophane, because that's essentially what it is. Um, And they just cut a little strip and I was like, wait, 
it's really just cellophane that you're wrapping around there, which is, I just think, pretty cool. And I want to know, like, who first did this? Mm-hmm. Um, and the cellophane turns into a little shrinky dink, right? Like the yeah. So it's, <laughs> it's basically it. that it, it's a foreign body, yeah. as, as is the amyloid constrictor, yeah. and even just the suture material That's that you true. would use for direct ligation. It's all foreign material, um, and so it'll stimulate uh, inflammatory reaction. And so the thought is that inflammation surrounding yeah. it is going to help attenuate over time as well and it just seems to be at the pace that we're happy with like i at least when i've been in on the procedure the surgeons will they'll wrap the cellophane around the vessel and they'll kind of staple it closed so that it's it's close to that but they're actually usually not trying to get any um, any attenuation of the vessel on day one at least what i've seen with the uh, the cellophane band technique so they're checking pressures and and i'm guessing you guys do the same thing where um in intraoperatively you put a a catheter into the vessel and then you measure the pressures um and uh, and because you want to know, okay, what are they now, and then what are they afterwards to make sure you haven't overdone it. You don't want to cause pul- or a, a portal hypertension right away. Yeah. Um, so if not, you're like, okay, we might need to adjust. Mm-hmm. Um, and most of the time um, with the cellophane band, the goal is like the pressure is exactly the same before and after we've placed it, and then we wait over time um, yeah. for that process um, to. And I don't know how they do it at other hospitals here. I've actually had cases where yeah, we were doing mm-hmm. um, me- measuring portal pressures intra op um but we've also had uh and i'd say in more cases than um not we're actually not directly measuring okay, the portal cool. pressure after we attenuate the shunt yeah I'm just um, confident that yeah well we're watching after we attenuate the shunt we're or put the amyroid on we're sort of watching for a period of time we're looking at the intestines and seeing okay. um what they're doing if do they look pale or is there you know hyperperistalsis yeah. um anything like that and if we don't see that um then we're generally pretty very, confident. Yeah, feel comfortable. Makes sense. Um, and so I would say here we don't routinely always measure portal pressures. Is there something that would make you want to measure them? Or is it just like surgeon preference or... Um, in the cases where we have measured them, uh, we've sometimes... If we're... Uh, We've measured them to confirm that we've actually found the shunt. Oh, okay. Um, makes so, sense. So, uh, you know, we'll... After we have attenuated the shunt or partially attenuated the shunt with whatever method we're using which tends to be amyloid here, uh, we will look to see once we've placed it, are, do we get an, an increase in, in portal pressures? Gotcha. And we, like if you look in the literature, there are numbers that would suggest like how much yeah, is too much safe. to yeah. increase them all at sort of like immediately. Mm-hmm. Um, I haven't had that be a case, the case in, um, in the cases that I've seen. And in, in, in the cases where we have measured portal pressures, it's been more so to confirm that um, gotcha. we have uh, found the shunt per se. Yeah. Or it also has something to do with the, like, we're, so we always want to ligate the shunt mm-hmm. um, where it's inserting onto ah. the, the cava or if it's at the azygous. Gotcha. Um, and so, and that's because you want to make sure that you get all the tributaries to that shunt because there might gotcha. be multiple tributaries coming to a single insertion on the, on the major vessel. Um, and so we always want to attenuate as close sort of, to the end of the road as you yeah, can. Yeah, because you can imagine if you're missing some yeah. of the tributaries, then you're still going to have some you're shunting have blood. Yeah, yeah so resolution. you're not going to you. You may still end up having residual clinical signs. Yeah. I mean, you can still have residual clinical signs even if you if you do attenuate right. the shunt right where it is inserting. But sure. certainly, I think that risk is higher if you're if you're not leaving um, behind some highways. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So, um, but those are the cases where I've seen it more routinely performed. I don't know how it's done at, at every hospital. That's at least how we tend to do it here. 
Yeah, um, I guess it probably depends on the technique and how precise that ke- technique could be. I suppose that'd be an argument against maybe like the cellophane banding because it feels like that's a little less precise um, than the amaroid ring yeah. um, constrictor. Uh, yeah. To be honest, I haven't seen the cellophane banding performed um, either just because I think, I mean, there are some papers out there that would suggest that you have a higher rate of residual flow if you go with thin film banding or a higher rate of... Yeah. Um, post-op complications following um, thin film banding versus amyloid. And I think that's disputed in the literature. Sure. But um, I can think of one fairly recent paper off the top of my head that um, that did show that. Uh, and so, um, yeah, like I said, at this hospital, most of our faculty tend to use amyloids. And so yeah. that's what I'm comfortable with. I think with that's what in recent years, that's mostly what people are using. I think that... Um, you know, the amaroid rings weren't around for a long time. Yeah. Um, and then they can be cost prohibitive initially when they come out. And as things get more and more um, cost effective, things yeah. change. But some people are just like, but I like this method and I'm good at and it. And I'm so. sure there are people that are yeah. doing it because they're, yeah. it, it's out in the yeah. literature right oh, yeah. now. And there are papers being published recently, yeah. like within the last few years. Yeah. How many folds is three better than four? How many, how many uh, surgical clips are we using to yeah. hold them off? Um, I'll be honest and say I don't uh, actually know if um, you're just sort of directly placing it around the the vessel or if people try to make it, like how snug they try to make it yeah. initially. I would think probably not that snug, but I, that's yeah, a gap again, in my own reading that what I need to I've, fill. Like I said, I've not like I've seen a ton of these, um, mm-hmm. but what I've seen is like, yeah, the goal is like not to actually constrict anything, to just to get it sn- like right around the, it, just yeah, snugly around it, the reaction later. The inflammatory reaction. And yeah. then... Um, but I don't remember how many times they folded it. And I didn't know that was like something I should have been paying attention to. <laughs> like this is a big yeah. debate, like three folds, four folds, well, trifold. It's probably more important for me to know. Than, yeah, it yeah. probably would come up on your boards, I can imagine. Um, I, I do remember them folding it, but I guess I, w- I don't know how many times. It's been, it's been, a, it's been a minute yeah. um, since I was in on that. And sure. again, I wasn't doing it. Um, but I also am just thinking, um, you know, there... <laughs> I mean, it was literally this precise, let's take some scissors and let's like eyeball, okay, that's about how wide we want it. And then we're going to fold it and then we're going to wrap it around. Um, it was, it kind of reminds me of like when you were a little kid and you took like your gum wrapper and made a ring out of it. Did you ever do that? If anybody, no, no just me. No. Okay. <laughs> Somebody listening did that and they're like, yes, I totally know what you're talking about. Like the foil packets that like a, a stick of gum comes in. Do you know the, fo- like the foil around a stick of gum? Yeah. Like juicy fruit. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. But it's gotta be the foil. that has yeah. got a little, little heft to it. And then you like fold that up and you can wrap it around. I don't know. Yeah. Anyway. And they have, uh, I think, established <laughs> the dimensions, which that they would want for the band. But again, I don't have those numbers off the top of my head. But the, di- you, the you mean like the widths or? Yeah. But I mean, isn't that going to be partly dependent on like the actual shunt, like where the shunt is and how much room you have and. I don't know. I think so. I think there's like might be an ideal okay. that you would want. It's at and least then you kind this of, big. I mean, it's or, like everything we yeah. haven't, well, maybe not like everything, but we have an ideal, but sometimes have to adapt. Yeah. Um, so, I yeah, I think I need to look into I that a little know. bit more. Well, and like most, most of the people listening of aren't going to be doing, <laughs> yeah, I suppose. But so, okay, um, I want to get back to the, the question that, that we discussed the other day. Right. So, okay, I'm the client and I'm like, okay, that all sounds well and good, but it also sounds very expensive. Why can't I just, is, isn't there like a medic, can't you just give my dog a pill and everything will be fine? Yeah, so there's, I mean, so there is a medical management component mm-hmm. to shunts. Um and I think some of the question that um, people debate is, you know, in a patient that comes in that is um, uh, symptomatic, you mm-hmm. know, we we tend to offer surgery. Mm-hmm. Um, I think most places would offer Not surgery. just offer, but recommend it, yeah. I think. Yeah. And so 
but there is a medical management component to to shunt and so you know there's a few things that we would recommend so lactulose is probably the thing that i recommend the most like that it's the number one priority yeah Yeah. for me it is yeah Yeah, and after even after i mean usually when patients come in for surgery it's they've um they've failed medical management Mm -hmm. um so the the family veterinarian has already um tried medical management and and they haven't had success or they just have tried medical management and they've had success but they still want the the surgery consult um but lactulose so it acts it changes the colonic ph um so that ammonia is getting converted it acidifies the the colon so it converts ammonia to ammonium which is not as absorbable, and so it gets carried out in the feces. So there's less ammonia circulating in the blood. So it's like less um, for the liver to do, less work exactly, for the liver. Yeah, makes sense. Um, and then the lactulose also sort of um, it, it will pull water. Yeah, into it acts the feces as a cathartic and, yeah, a little bit. So too, it yeah. decreases transient time. So you're also decreasing the time that you can um, absorb these. Yeah, things. that you can absorb these things, and then. Um, that time that these nutrients are exposed to bacteria that will metabolize it to ammonia, mm-hmm. these, these um, food particles to ammonia. Um, there are things like changes in diet. So choosing diets that are um, low in aromatic amino acids to decrease the amount of ammonia that's produced as mm-hmm. well. Um, so people will recommend, you know, liver diets or vegetarian diets, yeah. um, cause it tends to come from animal protein mm-hmm. more than, more than plant protein. Um, so that's one thing that people will recommend. And then also antibiotics, mm-hmm. um, to try and decrease the bacterial population within the colon, um, to decrease the amount of bacteria that are metabolizing, um, these nutrients to ammonia as well. Um, and so all of these are components of medical management. Um, and and you can certainly try them and um, see how the patient responds. If they respond, um, you know, that's great. Um, maybe it gives the owner more of an option if they didn't want to proceed with surgery. I tend to err on the side of fence of recommending surgery for these patients. Okay, so you wouldn't say if, it, if you were in charge um, or if it's like a friend or a family member who's calling you for advice and said, um, my dog's been diagnosed with a shunt, um, your recommendation would be, we can do the medical management to make your dog feel better, but ultimately I recommend surgery. You wouldn't say, let's try medical management, and then if it fails, we should do surgery. You're saying surgery is ideal regardless. I'm saying surgery is ideal regardless because I think even in the patients, and been shown in the literature that even the patients that are medically managed, mm-hmm. um, you know, there there is literature to support that patients that have um, surgery and they may still need some component of medical management sure. after the fact. So that's very important to know and mm-hmm. to warn, to clients, warn your yeah. clients of is that, you know, we recommend surgery, but you may still need some form of medical management. Right. It's just, you know, we're hoping that maybe instead of having to be on lactulose and a diet um, yeah. and antibiotics, you know, we can, we can get that down to maybe just two of the three or and like one less of the three. lactulose, less mm-hmm. diarrhea, yeah, less, you exactly. know, and I guess to me, it just makes sense, right? The lactulose, the antibiotics, the diet change, those are all band-aids. Like mm-hmm. they're not actually fixing the underlying Correct. problem. Yeah, like we're managing the symptoms. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we're saying, Hey, you know, let's give the liver less work to do rather than yep. say, Hey, let's give the liver the means to do its job. Right. Um, so that always just makes sense to mm-hmm. me. Yeah. And and so, yeah, and so there's, you know, there's a, there is a paper that shows that patients that have um, medical versus surgical management, the, the patients with, uh, that had uh, surgical attenuation of the shunt uh, or the, their shunts 
had um, better long-term outcomes than patients that had medical management. That's got to make you feel good, right? As a surgeon. Yeah. You're like, yes. Yes, a I little bit of job it. security, I guess. Yeah, chance to cut is a chance to cure. Yeah, yeah. But this, I mean, this makes perfect sense. Okay, but what about the patient who has no symptoms whatsoever, and it's yeah. found incident incidentally, right? Mm-hmm. Like, um, you know, I was just doing some pre anesthetic blood work because my dog was going to have procedure X, mm-hmm. um, and uh, the liver values were a little wonky, so my vet recommended doing more workup, which seemed reasonable. And then, mm-hmm. lo and behold, my dog has a shunt. It's never had any signs at all. I'm not reporting anything abnormal. Mm-hmm. Does my dog need surgery? <laughs> I know. <laughs> this, so this was uh, the question that spurred this whole show. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I, I mean, obviously I'm biased. Um, no surgery is benign. So you always have to weigh sure. the risk. You have a patient that's asymptomatic. And so going into surgery, you know, you can cause problems. And mm-hmm. if you try to attenuate the shunt, you could end up with things like portal hypertension. Mm-hmm. So you always need to be aware of the risks of what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, I would still probably ear especially if it was my own animal and like i said i'm biased yeah but i would um tend for those patients to still recommend going for for surgery just yeah. for the possibility of long-term changes on the liver and yeah hopefully they won't become asymptomatic um at a at a later date or i can, can right they develop them. symptoms i guess the other question i have is like big picture question is when a client says like my dog's not showing any symptoms. My question is how do you really know? Cause some of the signs yeah. are just like dolmentation, things like that. And what if you're just like, Oh no, my dog's chill. Mm-hmm. He's just a chill dog. And you're like, what if it's actually that he's got all these toxins built up in his blood <laughs> and he's, he's like, no, he's just kind of dumb. You're like, well he is, but it's not really his fault. <laughs> yeah. And maybe if we cleaned up his blood, mm-hmm. he could be happier. And I have, I've had a couple cases over the years where I think that was true mm-hmm. that after the patient that the quote unquote ACE, symptomatic patient had surgery the owners reported oh my gosh like this is a different dog in a good way um so i again when you've identified a problem that is like a specific this is an anatomical problem that we can fix and you know if the liver is not getting enough blood flow and not able to do its job like the we liver's rather important in fact if you don't have one you can't survive and so <laughs> like allowing it to do better just seems logical um again you know, you have to take everything into consideration, the costs associated with it, you know, the risks. Is this, mm-hmm. was this discovered in a 13-year-old dog versus a three-year-old dog? Yeah. You know, like if it was my 13-year-old dog, um, you know, I I might be less inclined to be like, yeah, let's go. Like the, yeah. probably the damage is done to the liver and it, we might not regain much function at that point. But so I'm not saying it's 100% every time, but just because a patient is quote unquote asymptomatic, I would still be considering surgery. Yeah, and and like you said, there there are a number of things that play into it. Yeah, example, finances, the age of the animal, yeah. and et cetera. And um, some of those things would probably affect my decision making too. I'd right. be lying if I said they didn't. Sure. Um, but uh, you know, I think um, in most cases, uh, I would tend to recommend yeah. um, attenuation. Albeit, you have to have a very good discussion with your your owners clients about the risks associated with surgery um, because there's a possibility that they have an asymptomatic patient or an asymptomatic um, uh, dog at home that then becomes symptomatic following surgery. And so then, you know, you really feel bad because you, what wasn't a problem in the owner's eyes, you've now made a problem for them. Yeah. And, you know, that's life. There's always risks with everything we do and you do the best you can and sometimes you you don't get the outcome you want. But I think it's actually really good advice just to, like, it's okay to imagine, like, if this were my dog, what would I want? Mm-hmm. And I think you just 
you know, you're, we're all going to have our biases, right? Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. I think if you're thinking about what would I want for my own pet, that's probably a good bias to think about, right? Like I'm not going to recommend something to somebody that I wouldn't recommend for my own animal. Um, that can be hard to know. Like I feel like this situation is a little more straightforward. So I'm not, I'm not saying that that's always really easy and obvious to know what you would do. Um, but I think if you in your gut, in your heart know like this is what I want for my own animal, then it's pretty easy to recommend that for a client. Mm-hmm. And, you know, even though you have, you let them know, like, there are risks with this. Um, I can't guarantee the perfect outcome, um, but I can tell you if it were my own dog, this is this is what I would want for my own dog um, for these reasons and so on and so forth. And I think that helps clients um, in a lot of situations um, until we have definitive, you know, statistical number, you know, say, okay, we have a study, you know, you'd have to design like, it'd be really hard to design that study, but to find a bunch of asymptomatic dogs um, that had shunts, um, or I guess maybe we could like breed, breed, get some like research bred, you know, purpose-bred dogs that had shunts um, and then, you know, prospectively, I guess you'd have to eliminate all the ones that didn't, that did have clinical signs um, and then take the ones that were asymptomatic and then just randomize them to get surgery or not. I, that's going to take forever to get that sorted. I don't know. <laughs> so it seems like a great idea, but I don't know. Anyway, um, other, oh, the, the last thing we should probably talk about is, um, whether or not you recommend pre-treating with um, anti-epileptic drugs for your shunt dogs. Yeah. So the, this, I would say, is probably very controversial in the literature. Um, Those are my favorite things. Yeah. So uh, the there's been a couple of studies um, lately that suggest, you know, I think there was one study that showed um, that the incidence of post-op seizures, which is a complication that you need to discuss with the owners and actually a very devastating complication because these patients, once they develop seizures post-operatively, don't tend to respond to medical treatment for the seizures. Um, And so in the majority of cases, um, it ends up being fatal in the sense that most of these patients get euthanized because of we can't control, we their, can't seizures. control their seizures and the majority of patients that develop the seizures not Correct. a majority of patients overall right. yes. yeah, yeah just yeah, to yeah, clarify yeah. that and the for patients listeners. that develop yeah. the seizures um, it's yeah. hard to control and exactly. they tend not to go well right um and so this is a real important complication mm-hmm. to discuss with the owners um because it can have such a, a devastating outcome for mm-hmm. them um and so there was one study that um, you know, in these patients, when they are in dogs undergoing attenuation of portosystemic shunts, when mm-hmm. they uh, pre-treated with levetiracetam or Keppra, then these dogs had lower incidences of post-op seizures. Um, that has been now in a couple of more recent papers um, disproven, or at least the protocols that they used yeah. in those studies didn't, didn't show. Get the same outcomes. Yeah, they didn't show that Keppra had any sort of protective effect. Right, um, and so. It becomes a question of, you know, do you or don't you? Because it's controversial in the literature Mm -hmm. and you probably have people uh, sitting obviously on both sides of the fence. Some people who do it all the time. Some people Mm -hmm. who who say there's no point. Um, For me, if a patient, uh, you know, is is showing pre-op neurologic signs, then absolutely I would put that patient on. Even if those signs aren't seizures. Correct. Yeah. Um, And there's been, I think, you know, that's been a negative prognostic factor. mm -hmm. Patients that are having neurologic signs immediately prior to surgery. Um, And so for for me, I actually tend to be on the side of the fence that I like Keppra in all patients undergoing Mm -hmm. portosystemic shunt surgery, regardless Mm -hmm. of whether or not they're showing signs preoperatively. Yeah. Um, and I realized that 
there's papers that have shown that maybe it doesn't have a protective effect, but mm-hmm. it makes me, I'll just be honest and say it <laughs> makes me feel better. Yeah. Um, so the, it's not because I can, I can support it with the literature. Yeah. It's more so I think if I were to have that outcome, mm-hmm. um, you'd after be kicking surgery, yourself like, what mm-hmm. if I'd had it on? Yeah. This? Because Kepper, you, it, you can start it and stop it very easily. Yeah. It's not, um, doesn't have some of the same risks as the other anti-epileptic medications. And so, um, you know, I think even just having them on it around the time of surgery and we've certainly done that and it might be the first thing that we discontinue after surgery, um, in terms of medical management. But for me, I, I tend to, to like having them on Keppra. Um, I will say I did have one patient where I didn't put them on Keppra and that patient did fine. Um, so yeah, <laughs> obviously well, and for years, you know, people were doing shunt surgeries right. and not yeah. using any anti-epileptic drugs. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, we also didn't have Keppra, um, as an option for a long time. And so, um, yeah, I think it's, it's still difficult. And I think, you know, as you said, as far as we know, and we've had Keppra around for, for a good bit of time now, not as long as other anti-epileptic drugs, but it seems pretty safe with a pretty low list of adverse side effects. And and so I think the general consensus is, um, even if we're not 100% convinced it's protective, um, you know, the, the risks of it causing harm are fairly low. And so, you know, the risk benefit analysis, I think a lot of people do come out and say, you know what, it, it maybe is worth, worth a shot because the studies that we have to keep in mind, these are always veterinary studies, which means they're always generally fairly small. Mm-hmm. Um, is it well controlled? Like is, is there, you know, can we say preoperatively that all of the dogs had a similar risk of developing post-op, right. you know, seizure complications that we don't even, we can't predict that now. Like we, we don't know who's most likely to develop these problems and that makes it hard to know, um, you know, who is at greatest risk. So it, it, it's, yes, the, the literature is split right now on, you know, whether you should, there's some evidence to support it. There's some evidence that doesn't support it. Um, so, um, but I think at least in my experience, a lot of surgeons do fall into the camp of we, we want them pretreated. Um, you know, some are like, we want you pre-treated for weeks before we do surgery. I think that's kind of fallen out of favor. People like, eh, you can just, you know, get it on board, like right before surgery. I'm Mm -hmm. fine with that. Um, yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think it's, what's interesting is like, we've been dealing with shunts in veterinary medicine for quite a long time and there's still a lot that we, you know, we don't have completely sorted out. Um, but overall it's, um, it's, it's not the worst disease that your, your dog can have. Um, it can be a little bit costly in the, in the grand scheme of things Mm -hmm. to fix, but it is a pretty fixable problem, um, which is exciting. Yeah. And I mean, I think if, um, you know, I don't know that necessarily these dogs, if, um, and I'm, I'm speaking more specifically about the younger dogs that come in with portosystemic shock. Yeah. Um, but the, the younger dogs that come in with a single extra hepatic portosystemic shunt, um, you know, if, if they are responding well to, um, surgery and or medical management if you mm-hmm. do need a component of medical management after mm-hmm. surgery there are some dogs that don't yeah um then um you know they they can have uh, a fairly long life yeah um, and a good and life good yeah, quality of life mm-hmm. yeah absolutely um i don't know that it would necessarily be i guess as like a, a fully normal lifespan but they could definitely make it well into their geriatric yeah yeah 
Yeah, it's not like okay, you're going to get six months to a year. Like you're going to expect no. them to live years yes. after this if they're yes. if you're talking about young dogs yep. that are diagnosed. And um, you know, it's hard to know how long that animal would have lived otherwise. Right. Yeah. Um, so I think that's but, sort of subjective. But I also I'm not can really say that. I don't know. Do you? I have no idea when I ask this. Is there any literature um, that's followed these dogs out for a long time? And you know, if they have a you know a shorter life expectancy, are they dying from complications of liver issues, or are they dying of other things? Yeah, I, actually, I don't know if anybody knows. I actually don't know if I've yeah. read anything about that. I'd have, I have to go no back idea. and look. But um, that's what I mean. Like I, I think we yeah. I, at least I tend to say you know like we assume mm-hmm, that this is probably yeah. going to have some negative effects, but we don't know what that is, or no. we can't quantify it. Yeah, no, I sure. don't think so. Because it might be that it doesn't, you know, in some cases, mm-hmm. like, and, and I don't know that you're, you'd necessarily know anyway, but at the end of the day, it's worth it. Do the surgery. Yeah. I feel like that's the take home. If you just want to, yeah, too long, didn't read. Um, that's the take home, right? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think this, this was really awesome. Okay. I, is there any, is there anything else that we, uh, we didn't give Topher a, a microphone today, but do you have any questions? Did that all make perfect sense to you? You feel like you could do the surgery yourself? Yeah, he's giving us the thumbs up. Um, Okay. Well, thank you, Dr. Dominic, for coming on the show. It's been so fun to have you. And um, maybe we'll have you back sometime to talk about something else surgery related. Yeah, for sure. Awesome.